Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. And of course, with me today is my friend and colleague, Nitin Gower. Hey, Nitin, how are you? Hey, Derek. I'm fine. Glad to be here. Oh, looking good. Another exciting week. Another exciting week indeed. You know, I'm probably not the only one in the world. In fact, there's 220 million subscribers of Netflix. Uh, but those subscribers will know these great programs like Ozark, The Laundromat, The Mechanism, Narcosis. I don't know what it is. We all seem to love watching how easy it is or how hard it is to launder money. And of course, in the fund management business, we are faced with KYC and AML, you know, that not only verifies, but validates who you are, but then determines that monies are invested in and out of investments must go from the same bank account and then back to the same bank account. It's a traceable loop to stop this world of Ozarks and laundromats to be, you know, flat out and in business like they are. And of course, we know that wonderful statistic, and that is that, you know, 70% of all printed notes in the USA, bless it, are $100 US notes. Now, that makes a lot of people very wealthy, but I actually haven't seen a lot of people with their wallet filled with 70% $100 US notes. So <laughs> laundering money <laughs> seems to be not only that of the entertainment world, but that of reality too in the USA and overseas. And the currency of choice is the US dollar. But crypto is giving it a bit of a bash. Um, and that is, you know, enter the world of crypto mixes and blenders. I mean, it really does sound like a cocktail list, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> these, these mixes and blenders shaken, not stirred, are names like Blender, Unijoin, Fox Mixer, Smart Mixer, Crypto Mixer, Chip Tumblr. Mixer. <laughs> Tumblr, Tumblr, that's right. Um, Ultra Mixer, Bitcoin Laundry, and then finally that's, Tornado. That's a perfect Cats. name, isn't that's that? The name, name you want to. That's the yeah. That's the name you want to have for your startup, Bitcoin Laundry. If in any doubt, <laughs> <laughs> our name is Bitcoin Laundry, right? So these crypto mixes and blenders are services that enables one to send your tokens through to a series of anonymous transactions and then arrive at different wallets. This makes it more difficult to trace the source of the funds, which makes the mixes a popular choice for those that want to keep their identity hidden. So on August the 8th, the US Department of Treasuries and Foreign Assets, OFAC, sanctioned a virtual currency mixer, Tornado Cash, which has been used to launder more than 7 billion worth of virtual currency since its creation in 2019. This includes over 455 million stolen by the Lazarus Group, which is a Democratic People's Republic of Korea state-sponsored hacking group, nice group of people, 
um, in the largest virtual currency heist to date. So Toyota Cash was subsequently used as a launderer also to launder more than $96 million worth of malicious cyber actors funds derived in June 24th in 2022 and Harmony in the Harmony Bridge High, sorry, and at least 7.8 million um, on August the section in the Nomad heist. So today's actions being taken um, as an executive order that's back on the 8th of August, really to to put in place a um, a stop on the currency mixer Blender.io back then, and also more recently Tornado. So. What we're seeing with these groups is an incredible sort of cocktail, if I may say, of opportunities to just go on an online service and immediately, so to speak, clean your cryptocurrencies and then transact them anywhere in the world. So surely the intent of this is clear. And if the intent is clear and the law is broken, these OFAC sanctions they're a valid sanction. What are your thoughts on this, Nitin? Yeah, and actually, it's certainly an exciting week, Derek. I think uh, this week, in particular, not just the OFAC uh, sort of, uh, you know, specially designated national, which is SDNs, to us for the very first time a smart contract, which means that they have had a they've added a smart contract to SDN list, which is quite big. It's it's one of the amongst all the college of regulators and all the actions. I think sanction list is quite big, because violation of that is almost thirty years in prison, and it's quite yes. serious offense as opposed to a fine that you would get from any of the other agencies that may be involved. But what was interesting this week was it sparked a very interesting debate, and and it has a long term implication on the industry too, and. I think we should dissect it for the audience, hmm. help them understand what is a mixer, what does it do, uh, what are the types of mixers, what are the other uh, privacy preservation technologies that do essentially the same thing, which is obfuscation of transactions. Uh, and then what is the debate? I mean, if things are bad, then it should be bad for everyone. And, uh, you know, I, I in, in effort to research this, Derek, I went all the way back to 1990s, the entire genesis of the CryptoPunks uh, or cypherpunks uh, sort of, uh, you know, fight with the with the system where we begin to look into free speech and label code as free speech. And it's super interesting that it's re-emerged again almost after 40 years. So it's been super interesting sort of debate from that perspective. But I think we should, at least for the audience, help them understand what do mixers do, right? And so I'll just open that up and take a short pause. And that way, see if you have any questions that way we have the foundational understanding of why this is happening and, and what is the implication on not just crypto industry, but also financial services industry. And you know many of us who are in the middle of it, uh, again, I've always said this, it's never a dull moment, but it's it just creates a whole lot more work in terms of a point of view perspectives, understanding the positioning of the work that we're doing in regulated financial industry and so on and so forth. So I think we should jump into what mixers do. So I'll give you an example, Derek. Let's say 10 of us sit in a room and we all take a bag and we put in $100 in a bag and we just mix it up a little bit. And again, this is fungible currencies. And eventually I ask you to pick a dollar or pick, pick one of the notes in, the, in that bag. You pick a note and that note may not be yours. You still get your money, but no one really knows who actually has whose note before it went to the bag. 
in essence, at a code level, that's what mixers do. So mixers provide a service to keep cryptocurrencies transactions private by potentially, you know, by mixing it with other identifiable cryptocurrencies, you know, with vast sum of other funds. And essentially what happens is you put in the money in one end, you have everybody putting in money in one end, the smart contract basically mixes it all up and you get something at, at the out of that process. And it becomes really hard to track and trace that currency, uh, which is essentially the fundamental elements of mixers. Now mixers, like everything else, come in different flavors. Uh, you have a centralized mixers, as the name suggests, is a centralized entity. They charge you a fee. Blender was an example, as you decided in your preamble, and they charge you a fee to accept your Bitcoin and eventually, um, you know, have a Bitcoin or Ether from the other side, and and they charge you a fee for it. And then you have also decentralized exchanges. Um, you also mentioned a few names like CoinJoin, for example, that is used to obfuscate transaction either using completely coordinated or peer-to-peer approaches. And, you know, there are other mixers that use zero-knowledge proofs, which we'll discuss in a, in a few, but essentially that's what mixers do. Now, if you look at um, why is this an issue? So coin mixing oftentimes, and this is again, the context of why OFAC actually added Tumblr and uh, in this case, Tornado Cash and other mixers uh, in the past to the OFAC's SDN list is that it's oftentimes comparable to money laundering in that it's a criminal conduct, right? And if you look at traditional way of how we launder money, you looking into placement layering and integration are two elements where I place the money, I integrate with existing financial systems and I layer it and eventually integrate with the, in the world and buying assets. So essentially, if you look at what mixers do, they do something, they have all these elements where I move in the money I place them in a certain area that's untraceable, and eventually I use that to go back and you know, conduct commerce with it. So just because someone is engaged in mixing, just like cash, doesn't necessarily indicate they're committing a crime. Instead, it simply means they want to increase the privacy of their transaction. And there are valid use cases, just like an existing world that we live in, and there are nefarious use cases that may lead to money laundering. And as I mentioned earlier, Derek, that money laundering comprises of placement layering and integration. And one way to do this is what mixers do is try to layer the transactions, obfuscate them, making the easier, you know, making harder to trace. And this is where integration happens, where I'm taking that out and eventually going and buying NFTs or converting them to stable coins and buying the assets. In essence, that's what, you know, uh, these mixers do. Of course, there are more than one ways to obfuscate transactions, but I'll get to that in a minute, but I'll take a short pause to see if that made sense. If if I described it well enough for you to understand and for the audiences to understand before we go into the valid use cases and the other debates that are ensuing around this. Well, in, well indeed, of course, Nitin. Can I ask, is it is it like for like, or you know, can I can I throw a Bitcoin in and get that stir, get that mixed up and get delivered some Avalanche and, and Cardano yeah. and and um, yeah. and Ethereum at the other end? Uh, so is it really mix? It mixes the tokens and it mixes the um, the the uh, wallet addresses, so to speak. That's a great question, and I think some cryptocurrency mixers are attempting to do that, even though there are some technical challenges, like we have discussed uh, in the past, in terms of bridges needing to convert one currency to another currency. So it becomes technically very complicated. 
And so for that simplicity, the if the intention is to simply obfuscate and hide the elements of transactions, then most of these mixes and blenders happen to be singular yes. uh, currency type. So which means that you all put in your Bitcoin and something comes out the other end, it's a Bitcoin. And that way, again, it is a cleansing mechanism, as you mentioned. It is laundering in some cases that you're, you come out, which with actually has no traces to where it came from. And then eventually you have, again, a clean start, so to speak. Um, so in most cases, they are layer one protocol driven and they are mm -hmm. single uh, layer one protocol and layer one sort of uh, token driven uh, blenders. Simply because they're the largest volume of tokens, I would imagine, not correct. because they're layer one. Correct. Yeah, okay. Correct. So the other thing is that, you know, the difference between, um, you know, intent and accident is clear. Like, like we have beautiful parrots in Western Australia. And if I shoot one, that's intent to kill. If I hit him in the car, unfortunately, on the way home from a country <laughs> drive, that's an accident, you know. Um, and so, you know, when you're sitting there and you're going, I want my name not to be known, I want privacy. Uh, and this is how I'll do it. What what good intent reason would yeah. someone have for doing that? No, that's a very valid use case, Derek. And I actually researched into that. It's like, why would I use? Mm. And so this goes back to the nature of blockchain. So if you look at with this massive rapid rise of blockchain forensics, Chain and Lattices, TRM Labs, Elliptic, there are now a handful of companies who have done a pretty decent job. So you have this forensic blockchain analytics, blockchain intelligence, and the inherent open nature of public blockchain networks. All transactions are open for everyone to see, which again, extends itself to the trust system. It's hard to cheat, things are transparent. The entire rhetoric around why we use blockchain. And this also makes it impossible to track, you know, transact privately, I think, uh, on open ledger, which is, the, which is the genesis of why this came about. So it's use mm -hmm. cases, right? Which is why would someone would not want to embark on that, you know, open transparent system, which is such a beautiful thing after sliced bread. Well, there are a few good reasons, right? One is if you look at large businesses and high net worth individuals, well, they may not want to attract attention or may not want to attract either some sort of a, a, a crypto heist or some sort of attack on their wallets. And they would want to remain anonymous so yes. that they can transact yes. and pre preserve their wealth and preserve their privacy, which is what most large corporations do using whether you use the shell corp and shell corps are notorious for nefarious behaviors as well. And then you also have from an enterprise perspective, you don't want competitors to view your transaction history, uh, depending on who you're transacting with. And this comes up every single time when we design a permission network too, is that most enterprises who we onboard, they would not like them to expose the transaction volumes between two parties, because I can tell a lot about transaction between two parties. If there's an obvious business relationship, if there's something interesting happening between how money moves or how assets yes. move between two parties. Yes. Uh, and so again, so supplier details, the cost of operations, you don't want all that to be available because many times it is a competitive advantage, right? It is. And in many cases, I think high net worth individuals are more vulnerable to hacks and attacks because of obvious the fact you know obvious fact that they have wealth and they don't want the real world identity to be known because it could be a threat to their being depending on which country you're in you may have physical security issues that go with it so i think many of these mixers and tumblers provide that extra layer of security in giving you that that sort of right to financial privacy to many people uh, i looked at other use cases too in in fact i looked at the use cases that's very native to crypto where you have projects like gitcoin 
and you have a project that, so for example, me and Derek Inc. would like to create a stealth project. And I float a idea on Gitcoin, inviting people to work on that project without them knowing the ulterior intent of the project that I'm working on because it's in stealth mode. And to do that, I need to pay these people. I need to pay them in, again, virtual currencies. So I'm going to use this mechanism to obfuscate uh, the project intent and the folks I'm working on payroll, for example. You don't want payroll corporation to know who's paying uh, only because that will lead to, you know, opening up in terms of the project that you're working on. So you have all these reasons why, which is yes. which are valid use cases yes. that the industry has encountered. And um of course, every time you have the valid use case, you always have people who are trying to, again, use the same system uh, for ill intent uh, activities. And, and I think that's where I think things become super interesting. Yeah. But the collateral damage in all of this with OFAC, SDN, list and sanctions sort of screening elements is that many of these entities would have to now resort to a different avenue to protect their identity. So isn't that, um, it's interesting because, you know, the creation of the blockchain uh, you know, is, is to show every transaction real time, no auditing required, and um, an impeccable providence of each one of those transactions. In other words, yeah. it's all seen. Uh, and then yeah. part of this all seen environment is causing issues because you also want privacy in it. And so clearly, um, this is not as clean as my murdered parrot uh, argument. Um, <laughs> this, this really, uh, you know, there's valid reason for this. But wouldn't zero knowledge proof resolve this problem for the wealthy, and therefore there'd be no reason for these tum the, these tumblers and and mixes to occur? Yeah, no, no. I think so. Uh, this is a tumbler mixes one way to obfuscate transactions. So again, uh, mixes many of them work by pooling the funds together. Uh, they have different sources allowing them to withdraw from the pool. They do interesting things like if you put in hundred dollars and you can have extract. Uh, hundred you know hundred dollars uh, through hundred different transactions, which is essentially structured deposit and structured you know withdrawal in, in in the real world, and that way you don't know you know where the money came in from and 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 you chunk it up in smaller pieces and and that's essentially how mixes work. And they have mm. different attributes in terms of how you really want to obfuscate and eventually cover the trails and uh, create randomized distributions. Uh, and and this is exactly how all the mixes work. But then you have other approaches too. You have privacy coins. And I think uh, dominating privacy coins you've seen as Zcash and Moneros, for example, and others are mm. Beam, Grin, and Pivx. And privacy coin is interesting. It's a layer one approach, which means they work at same layer as Bitcoin and Ether do. They keep the flow of money in the network from the public eye. And they do that by usually restricting the vital information, such as wallet addresses, transaction amounts of the sender, receiver wallet addresses from the public view. In many cases, they create an alt wallet, which has its one-time use wallet and they die and they actually then use those wallets to transact. Uh, and eventually, you know, that's how they preserve privacy, which is also quite popular mechanism, which may be the next resort for many of the valid use cases that I mentioned with high net, net worth individuals and, and corporations and entities who really want to protect their privacy. Uh, and in many cases, it's, they're also not, uh, you know, uh, immune to any of the regulatory actions as we have seen so far, only because of the fact that it becomes increasingly difficult to implement things like travel rule and KYC and AML as you described earlier, because if I cannot ascertain identity to an asset, then it becomes increasingly difficult to enforce 
many of these global uh, elements. So if they're not immune to it, but th that's another approach you have. And there's another approach, which is what you mentioned, which is using zero-knowledge proof. And zero-knowledge proof is a family of, of, of technologies of, of cryptography, which the most common and efficient one is ZK-SNARK. And nothing to be snarky about, Derek. <laughs> it stands for short for, you know, it's uh, knowledge, uh, zero-knowledge, succinct, non-interactive argument for knowledge. And all that simply means is that, you know, I'm not getting into a conversational state. And essentially, zero-knowledge means that I should be, me and you should be able to transact without knowing about each other and how much we have, but still having enough proof to say, if Derek has promised to pay me $100, he has $100 with him. And that's what essentially ZKPs or zero knowledge proofs do. Uh, how they achieve it is different in some cases. Some of them are conversational state, which we constantly have to connect. Some of them are succinct, non-interactive, which means that I don't have to have a very chatty protocol that does that. But that aside, that's the third privacy option that you have. And this is actually quite popular, Tarek, mm. in asset management and DeFi protocols, because as you know, every hedge fund, every crypto fund, they have an IP. They have an IP in terms mm. of how they manage the liquidation of assets, how they manage the momentum trading, how they manage you know various strategies that they enforce. And for mostly DeFi protocols, because they're on blockchain, it's quite open. You kind of know when a protocol buys and sells. Uh, and this is again, things like yield farming. And so one way for many of these DeFi ecosystem players to protect their strategies and privacy preservation requirement for DeFi ecosystem, they use something like a ZK SNARK to protect their privacy. And this is a valid use case. I mean, as a, yeah. you know, as a new, you know, coming from an, as an asset management industry, we like to protect the IP, we like to protect uh, our strategies. And since it's an open world, which also lends itself to the trust, how do you protect uh, some of the strategies from coming to life uh, and making it open for everyone to see and understand and replicate? Um, and a perfect example yeah. is we've seen that, uh, you know, Uniswap, SushiSwap, PancakeSwap, they all are cut and paste with some modification to the code and you begin to lose your competitive advantage, which is such an important thing to your protecting your ideas and protecting your thoughts. So privacy preservation, I think, uh, you know, many of the academics and computer scientists, including the community that's behind crypto, uh, is not only fundamental rights, but I think it's viewed as a foundation upon which other human rights are built. So I'll pause here, Derek, to see if that makes sense. So to me, I, I, you know, everyone loves to see black and white results. This has got some gray areas in it. But if we had very effective zero-knowledge proof, uh, and we could transact together and around the world with zero knowledge proof. Zero knowledge proof, assuming the onboarding is correct, zero knowledge proof then means that um, I can do business with anybody that I'm allowed to do business with anywhere in the world. And they don't need to know who I am and I don't need to know who they are. I don't need to know who they are. All I need to know is that they can pay me for my valid service or transaction. And yep. And if that's the case, you can start taking away these gray areas and maybe the likes of Monero and others and these um, blenders and mixers um, would start being more clearly crystallized as, as methods for laundering money rather than less methods for proving, um, you know, for maintaining privacy. Because what you say is very true. I mean, we deal with family offices all the time. Their privacy yeah. is very important. They don't like being hit upon all the time. They're people of wealth. 
uh, and that people are well, you know, their challenge is lifestyle then, you know, who's hitting up, who's hitting yeah. them all the time for money? Are they safe? Uh, do they have good cyber protection? All of this is due to the fact that they cut profile and they don't want to. So zero knowledge proof would be very compelling. It's like a virtual private network for them. Um, and they can then do transactions, but that doesn't mean they have the right to do laundering. And maybe this is a, this is a sequence of technology availability that we're facing here. Um, and of course, always overlaid with the issue of, of what is morally um, or commercially correct. Do you think zero knowledge proof could solve this? So uh, it's one of the technologies, right? It's, it's never one golden silver bullet of sorts that fixes everything. I think to me, technology code, not code of law or code of regulation that's going to solve this, which means mm. you can't play whack-a-mole with every single smart contract that's out there. And this reminds me of the original cypherpunk story. And I, I was such fascinating articles that I read today in preparation for this, uh, for this uh, podcast, Eric, mm -hmm. that it goes back to the debate now that's ensuing in the industry from Coin Center and many of the think tanks who represent the crypto industry is around financial privacy. It's around free speech. And believe it or not, in 1990, the cypherpunks argued that there was something called PGP, which is pretty good, pretty good privacy. It became a product later on. It was encryption software. Uh, it was protected by the First Amendment because under the hood, it was just written series of instructions to be carried out by a machine. So the argument at the time, and this is uh, NSA and many of the, again, alphabet soup of, of, of the agencies around the United States wanted to protect this because at the time they figured that encryption would be the next, which is true, uh, could be the next wave and they didn't want this to be available to, to common uh, people and especially not of foreign nationals that could exploit this technology to their advantage. Mm. And in 76, there was an Arms Export Control Act, which made it illegal to distribute ammunitions to other countries without a license. And that eventually also included cryptography. So cryptography was viewed as ammunition uh, under the same export regulation act that they had, which is the AECA. Now, to me, as I read this, I see it as a beginning of crypto wars and cyber, you know, cypherpunk movement. And what is interesting, Derek, was that these are all MIT uh, professionals, super smart people, and changing the nature of the. This is again, 90s was the was the massive evolution of internet and amazing technologies. That was again the backbone of the massive growth that we had seen in in our economic system in general. And one of the sort of uh, you know pioneers of the movement went ahead and published this in MIT Journal. So while the NSA and other entities were fighting towards one individual it was hard to fight the MIT because now you had a whole brigade of the super smart, intelligent people who are working on many different things, again, pertaining not just to national security, but also uh, this amazing technology that would just progress us as human race, uh, you, know, you know, much forward and, and, and to a whole new level. And what's interesting was people begin to print t-shirts with a code on it. People tattooed the code on their bodies. There's a whole, <laughs> I was just <laughs> laughing at this just to protect the fact that this is just written instructions carried by machine. And eventually they backed off. And I see the same argument rising again, the same mm -hmm. argument in terms of the fact that code is law, code is, 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 uh, is uh, free speech. 
and um, and again, I think you may have heard and read that you know they were targeting developers as opposed to offenders, and that's just you know there were some arrests made in in in, in Netherlands and Microsoft removed the GitHub repo, and to me this is all censorship in terms of what it should be, and I think to answer your question now that you cannot I think it's you can only counter the problem with smarts, not by code of law or enforcing a executive order, which means that we need to get smart about it. We need to cut technology with you know technology, exactly what many of the blockchain forensics have done, is to be a bit more smart and not just, you know, completely, uh, you know, just because a bank is involved in money laundering, you don't shut down a bank. And we've known enough of those fines that the banks have gone through over time. So I think things like, you know, Front end blocks, for example, what is happening today is all the blocks that are happening are from front end. So many of the front end applications have blocked transactions from from uh, from this tornado cash addresses. But at the end of the day, it's still blockchain, right? Which means that you can block the front end, but if someone who's who understands how this works can still process transactions behind the scenes, so there's no stopping it only because that's how blockchain function. So. We can do things like apply zero knowledge proof to obfuscate privacy, but apply tools to interact with mixer addresses, understand using various graph technologies to understand the pattern inside of those mixers. Because at the end of the day, fundamental element of how we address blockchain is be able to move assets from point A to point B using the same concept of wallets, addresses, you know, ledger uh, consensus. That doesn't fundamentally change. Or they could be a bit more specific in blocking a specific transaction or specific activity and being a step ahead, which I think would be a much more meaningful and much more intelligent and smart way of doing it than simply going after these projects because it will become eventually whack-a-mole. If if everybody begins to cut and paste the code and you create a million smart contracts tomorrow, I don't know how effective the sanctions process would be. Uh, and how hmm. effective it would be in terms of enforcement. And I think that is that is my perspective. Of course, nobody, you know, we still have to protect our democracy. We still have to ensure that there are no bad actors. I think there's, there's a general consensus that bad things have to be stopped, including the bad hmm. things that happen in our existing financial system. But there has to be a smarter way to do it. I'll stop here, Derek, to see if that makes sense. It does. And Nitin, you know, my, my dear old dad used to always say that, um, that if you get the philosophy right, then everything else follows. And, and it reminds me of Asimov's three laws of the robotics, you might remember. And this is something he created in 1942, wow. which is extraordinary, um, in, a, in a book called um, Runaround. And it was the beginning of the iRobot collection. And the first law was that a robot may not injure a human being or through his inaction, allow a human being to be harmed, right? The second law says a robot must obey the orders given to him by human beings, except where those orders would conflict with the first law. And the third law is the robot must protect his own existence, as long as such protection does not conflict with laws one and two, right? Now, I raise this because if we could get a base (laughs) philosophy that you could always refer these many variations against, then we would have something that you could always refer to as the main laws of, of crypto assets and cryptocurrencies. Yeah. It'd be great to see. It's a big ask, but it'd be great to see. But Nitin, much covered t- tonight. Uh, I think yeah. we clarified that 
that these mixes aren't necessarily um, laundromats only, and they have a reason for being. And there possibly could be transitional technology here with the likes of zero knowledge proof coming up that will resolve some of this. But like normal, this space is in a constant state of evolution and a degree, a state of flux on the way through. And, uh, and it's you know, people that are really thinking about it and wanting to make a difference are those that are forming these first laws of robotics, so to speak, the philosophy of how this space might work. Um, yeah, thanks again for your thoughts and research on this. Um, I'm intrigued about it, uh, as I always am, both from a viewpoint of the entertainment of what watching Ozark and the laundromats like and seeing what people do <laughs> That's a great and show. how they get around it, and, uh, and also from the fact that this is a moral challenge at the same time. Thanks, Nitin. Yeah, and, and no, absolutely. And I think uh, two things, like Derek, uh, before we sign off here, uh, is that it's a, it was a heavy topic. So if audience want to get in touch with us, happy to, uh, you know, um, sort of break open this a bit more in terms of granularity. But uh, in terms of show, I begin to watch all financial crime show, even though they have more drama than actual financial crimes. It's only to be able to say, yeah, I know how that's done, or I know how, what, where they went wrong, or what they did wrong. So it is just, a, you know, uh, some of these shows are brilliant. Some of them are, of course, just more drama. But thanks again uh, for this conversation. Terrific. Good on you, Nitin. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.